Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 116. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guests this episode are Stephen Brodsky, J.R. Connors, and Adam McGrath of the incredible band Cave In. As you'll no doubt pick up on through this episode, where I probably talked maybe a little too much myself, I've known these guys for quite a long time and got to spend a good deal of time together on the road with them, touring throughout the Midwest, South, and Northeast with my former band, Burn It Down, and Caven around the time of their Creative Eclipses EP and Jupiter, which is one of my favorite albums ever. It's one of those things where, even though I don't see them or talk to them all that often, as happens in adulthood, there's something about those kind of formative experiences in whatever area of one's musical career. When you're in a band or a merch person, a a tour manager, a crew member, a driver, whatever, if you've been part of that, and you've shared those experiences, you just sort of feel like you know people <laughs> a different way. There's a certain type of intimacy and a, and a shared bond connection there. I was into Caven pretty immediately when I found out that they had, and you'll hear us talk about this in the episode and sort of what made this so special other than the fact that it ripped. But when I found out they had had a hidden track on one of their records that was a medley of Metallica songs. The Metallica love obviously runs deep with these guys. A huge salute to Caleb Schofield, the bass player for Caven, who passed away in 2018. Caven continues with the band and Caleb and my friend, Nate Newton, of Converge and many other super cool projects. I can't think of a better person to hold down that position and to honor Caleb's memory on stage and in the studio with these guys. They have a new record called Heavy Pendulum. It's doing well. I, You may or may not know this if you listen to the podcast, but I do a newsletter on Substack. I've actually done it way predate Substack. I've been doing this thing for over well over a decade. But it's called Stream and Destroy, and it's metrics and data for the heavy music, you know, hard rock, metal, punk, hardcore-ish adjacent industry. And... People are buying a lot of Heavy Pendulum on vinyl. It's very impressive, especially given how long Caven's been a band at this point. Um, They're still doing it, and they're still making interesting, exciting records that really kind of cover and encompass a lot of the different things that they had tried over the years. So, let's jump right into this episode. It's a three-guester, but I think it sounds pretty good, and I think you'll enjoy it. I was also... Very happy to hear from Stephen, which he didn't really let this slip until pretty late into the episode, but that he has been listening to Speak and Destroy. So that was flattering and pretty rad. I mean, if, if you're not familiar with just Brodsky alone, the amount of talent in that guy, his voice, his playing, his personality, his charisma, you know, he's got solo stuff out there, he's other projects. If you watch Two Minutes to Late Night, which you should, you know, him and Ben from Converge or as, as Mutoid Man, they're the house band. I mean, he's just endlessly talented and, uh, you know, a lot of mutual friends, just a certain group of people where there's, there's a real family vibe, even as the years and the geography put distance between everyone. 
Remember, you can follow Speak and Destroy on all the different social media platforms. You can support the podcast on Patreon. You can follow me on Instagram at Ryan J. Downey underscore on Twitter at Ryan Downey. And you can check out my other podcasts in the Pop Curse Podcast Network, which include No Prize from God and Pop Curse. So here it is, my conversation with Adam, Stephen, and JR of the band Cave-In. This is Speak and Destroy. wants to start with this question my pre-metallica question which is and this is something i actually don't know about any of you so i'm very interested to learn i like to ask you know when you first discovered music like what was around the house or however you were first exposed to it and then at what point came that pivotal time of like okay this isn't just something i love this is something i have to participate in i need to be a part of this somehow I will start with you, Stephen. My first connection to music probably dates back to before I can even remember, because uh, according to my parents, whenever I was inconsolably upset about something or another, they would play the moody blues and I would shut up magically somehow. (laughs) I'm not a huge moody blues fan, but I think that's just sort of an interesting thing to know about growing up or at least my childhood before I could even remember. Um, My first memory of connecting with music would have been listening to a single of the song Horse With No Name by America. And I was just obsessed with it. Just the two chord pattern over and over again. I loved the vocal melodies. I think my grandparents had the a copy of that record and I just wore it out on their little record player. And then later on, I guess getting into heavier music, I really connected to it, I guess, um, maybe as early as like when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade and the kids that I hung out with in my neighborhood, we were all into riding BMXs and skateboarding. And there was just always this soundtrack of heavy music around me in the suburbs where I grew up. And I guess it really connected to me or I made the connection to it uh, full on when I was sort of going through a tough time in like sixth and seventh grade and I wasn't happy with my friend group and I wanted to make new friends. And I knew that, you know, having an interest in, in heavy music was sort of like a gateway to finding myself and sort of blending in with a crowd that was more my speed. 
And I, I have this memory of um, going shopping with my parents to, at the mall and, you know, I saw like a Megadeth shirt and I was stoked on that. I picked that out. I got a Metallica like all over print t-shirt with all the album covers. And I was like, that's the one. And I wore that to school the next day. And I didn't even like go hang out with the friend group that I'd been like, you know, trying to integrate with for two years. I just like walked by them and started hanging out with people that were sort of more aligned with like metal and music and art. And that was like a huge turning point for me. That would have been the beginning of my eighth grade. So like 92, 93, something like that. I also got kicked out of CCD, which is like um, sort of like this religious, like uh, sort of after school, like Christian sort of school experience um, for listening to Iron Maiden, like in class and just having my headphones on so loud that it was like completely distracting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was never invited back. So I got Iron Maiden to thank for that. Little did they know that Nico McBrain would be a born again Christian later in life. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha, CCD. <laughs> it all comes full circle. It does. And do I spy a No Life Till Leather cassette in your background? Yeah, I found that somewhere. I don't know. It's probably not the original, but, um, you know, I got a little cassette collection of stuff that still some, you know, still somehow plays after all these years. And that's uh, one of several Metallica tapes that I've hung on to. I uh, love it. Uh, well, I mean, and who knows what qualifies even as an original at this point, given that it was so heavily traded in the tape trading scene. And, you know, how many how many generations of dubs does it take before it ceases to be original? I think it's probably always original if it's, you know, if it's from the 80s. When they repressed it sort of recently, didn't they sort of do it like, like it was very sort of plain and there's no there's no type yeah. or anything on the cassette? Yeah. That that's sort of what's going on with this one. So I'm guessing it's it's a reprint. Yeah, they made those reprints very authentic, but even those were pretty limited. They were gone pretty fast. So it's still a nice thing to have. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. pass it over to you, Mr. McGrath. First emotional response to music probably be I get around by the Beach Boys, which was on the uh, Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack. My dad was really listen, uh, into listening to like movie soundtracks for whatever reason. And he would jam like the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack, the Cocktail soundtrack, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, and then uh, like the Beatles' greatest hits, the uh, the red with the red cover, like uh, 64 to 66. So that, those are like my earliest memories of music. But Beach Boys, I get around. I remember being obsessed with when I was a little kid. As far as like really getting into music and wanting to play it, uh, my cousin, I had an older cousin who got me into Kiss. He gave me um, Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits, probably like 1988 when it came out. And that was just like, I mean, I was just uh, totally, just completely loved it. I love the comic book aspects of it. I love the makeup of it. I didn't realize at the time, like how, like, you know, there was like the hair metal era of Kiss and how, you know, how strip club and uh, like just shabby it was, but I still loved it. You know, I still loved the Heavens on Fire, the, 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 uh, the, the era of Kiss that wasn't considered very classic. I still loved all of it. But uh, Kiss was like my favorite band, making me want to like take guitar lessons and maybe want to like play music. Uh, but as far as like trying to want to do bands, there was like, you know, local scenes around Methuen, Massachusetts, where I would see, I would see bands play either like at school, like there was a band, I remember it was like fifth grade, like a band playing Metallica outside, playing From Whom the Bell Tolls. And that's probably the first time I've ever heard Metallica, because that bass line, like right away, like stuck in my mind, like I didn't even know who it was, but I was like, this bass line's amazing. 
but I had a, there was a kid around the corner for me named Darren Grenier who had a garage and he had like this crazy drum set. Like it, it was completely over the top, like Lars Ulrich. And he had this, the Metallica poster with Lars with all the Zildjian stuff. Lars were in the Zildjian outfit. And he had a band called Spastic Laugh. And that watching those guys, and they were a lot older than me. I was really young, like little, little fat kid going over and watching these guys. That's such a and, crucial cred band name too. <laughs> yeah, Spastic Laugh. Yeah. They, you know, looking back there, I, they were, I don't think they're very good, but I thought they were the greatest band in the world, you yeah. know, and watching them really was like, I want to take guitar lessons and I want to start my own band. So that was kind of like the gateway to that. Just seeing like these Methuen kids who played like Salisbury beach once a week, you know, that was, that was the goal for them. And that seemed really attractive to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in that age of discovery and, and getting immersed in this and everything's new, and you're uh, the cert that certain age, literally, I found that there was no distinction back then for me between local bands and quote unquote real bands. Like we had a couple of local bands that in my mind and in my friends' minds were every bit as important or meaningful or of a, st of a stature as like the larger bands that we read about in magazines. There was, there was a band in Indianapolis called Drop Dead, not to be confused with the punk drop dead that everybody knows uh, they were a thrash band and they never made it past the demo phase they released three cassette demos but they were like pro-made cassettes so they, they seemed like everything i was buying was on cassette so it just seemed like everything else and they would always get the local opener spot on every thrash show that came through so if it was like flotsam and jetsam or you know any band at any sort of level in the thrash world they would always open so yeah, my, my buddy Matt Reese and I saw the drummer from Drop Dead in Radio Shack one day, you know, and we're like 14 and we're, you know, we're like trying to get his autograph, you know, because we're like, it, it, it might as well have been Lars, like at Radio Shack, you know, we're just like, what? Like, you know, little did we know that he like probably worked there or something. <laughs> we just like celebrity sighting. So yeah, those are so crucial. And I also want to say something about Kiss real quick, which is that it's fascinating the the multi-generational influence that that band has you know like how what a wide gulf that it crosses and of course that you know there's a lot of legendary bands and artists that are continually rediscovered and passed down you know from older sibling to younger sibling but kiss in particular you know having uh people of like the Metallica generation who were like, you know, in the same, in their fifties, late fifties, even a lot of those guys will tell me that Kiss was like the band that started them. And then, you know, going all the way up to like uh, Andy from Blackville Brides, who was born in 1991 and Kiss was the band that got him into everything, you know? And when his dad was showing him Kiss, they were, it was like revenge era. You know, it was like just before they put the makeup back on and he's like, you know, elementary aged. And and I remember I, I had an older brother and my older brother and cousins were into like makeup kiss and I didn't really understand it and thought it was scary and wasn't really into music yet. And then I saw the Creatures of the Night video for uh, I Love It Loud. And it was that was that for me was like just one of those life changing moments. But all of which is to say most of the kiss that I experienced and you guys would experience in adolescence was makeup free kiss. 
right you know it was bruce kulik <laughs> you know right. it was like I, I love that bruce was kiss to us <laughs> yeah exactly and, I, and 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 unbeknownst to me at the time before i was ever like studying stuff like this a lot of the kiss songs that i loved probably all the kiss songs that i loved were vinnie vincent songs you know and i didn't that's a strange era <laughs> no idea exactly it's yeah. like such a weird yeah it's such a weird moment in time but yeah it's just it's fascinating that that's a, a band in particular that seems to not just continue to have an influence the way like obviously a zeppelin or or whatever does but but that they were able to continue to do that while still being an active band through all these eras you know so there's like there's somebody where like tears are falling was their first kiss song and that like got them really stoked you know or or somebody who like psycho circus was like their first kiss cd you know i've i've had people people in bands on this podcast who discovered metallica at saint anger you know like death magnetic i just had somebody on who that was their their entry point and that was like the current record when they were like 14 so right. yeah it's crazy so anyway we got one more to do but pass the mic yeah uh, i just i would like to add to adam's little story there that drummer that was living in his neighborhood we actually that guy we actually i met him once and i remember walking into his basement and seeing that drum set it was it was like a for real heavy metal drum set and i asked him if he could play one and he did like the whole <laughs> double bass thing and it, it like at that point it blew my mind you know <laughs> but i remember that guy and i remember like I was like, yeah, I want to do this shit, you know, uh, but that's not the reason why I got into music, but that that's a good aside to that story. But initially, I think from what I can remember, I remember being really interested in music with uh, that theme song, Axel F from, mm -hmm. uh, I think from, you know, the cop movie there. Yeah. Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. Beverly Hills. Uh, cop. Her Harold Fultemeyer. Yes, exactly. I used to play that like on my brother's like little crib. Like I used to pretend it was like a musical instrument of some sort. And I would play along to that song. And then on top of that, it was like Michael Jackson. My mother loved Michael Jackson. So we would listen to that a lot in the house. Like I started getting 45s from my parents and one of them was Band on the Run. And that like, I was like, this is amazing music. And then on top of that, I had the second 45 that I had was um, We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad. All of you have such like, so many like <laughs> Beach Boys and like, there's all this stuff's amazing. Like, a lot of it's things that, that even people who live for music don't discover until like adulthood, you know? Yeah. It's great uh, that, that all that stuff was early for you guys. Yeah, I mean, I think I just got lucky because my parents were both kind of into music. My mother was more into like, you know, Motown type stuff. And my father was into like the classic rock Zeppelins and all that, you know. I initially wanted to be a guitar player, but I decided on drums after, you know, Slippery When Wet came out and I listened to that record all the time. And then Molly Crew kind of cemented the deal for me. I, I fell in love with Tommy Lee. And that's what made me want to be a drummer. I mean, the whole spinning drum set cage and all that, you know, that that spectacle that they made, it drew, drew me in as a kid, you know, yeah. just like Kiss would, you know, uh, Motley Crue were the shit for me, you know. And when I think about drummers, hard rock drummers, like I can't and I'm not like a huge crew guy, but. I mean, I immediately think of dun, 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 dun. like that's yeah. just like one of the greatest drum licks or whatever ever, which is fun because you realize that it was ripped off, you know, from uh, oh, now I can't think of the band. Steve, what's that band? 
<laughs> killing joke. Yeah, killing joke. Oh wow, is it really? Yeah, yeah. the Doctor Feelgood drum part. Wow. Yep. Yeah, yeah. My mind right now. How do I have? Yeah. How do I have this? How do I have this gap in my killing joke knowledge? Yeah, check out uh, Nightlife. Is that the yeah, record Nightlife. with um, '80s on it? The that the the song that Nirvana stole for "Come as You Are." Yeah, I, that that lift I'm aware of the the old riff lift, <laughs> I like to call it. But yeah, it's actually I never, never it seems that. like there's a lot of borrowed material from that record by other yeah. bands, you know. Yeah, and this is and this is something we'll get into, no doubt. But that's one of the great things about Metallica is that they're they're not only so unashamed and unapologetic about that, but they they champion those bands that they were inspired by, and and in a lot of cases, you know, like. I, I think Hank Sherman from Merciful Fate is probably paying his mortgage with Merciful Fate medley royalties. <laughs> you know, it's like they've really kind of like lifted. I had uh, Animal from Anti Nowhere League on the podcast, and, and he was telling me that when uh, around the time of the Black Album and Metallica was playing So What all the time, he was working construction. And they had him come out on stage at Wembley and sing with them. And the band got back together shortly afterwards and has been going again since then and it's just like man that's powerful like that's so cool to be in a position to be able to do that for the bands that you love as opposed to just kind of quietly lifting their stuff yeah <laughs> not, not telling anyone <laughs> who i've never heard of that band the soundtrack thing is crazy because as i'm listening to you guys i'm remembering the first 45 that i had that i was like really into and like singing in the mirror with the hairbrush was my mom gave me uh, We're Coming to America by Neil Diamond from The Jazz Singer. Cool. And that was like, there was just something about like the theatricality and the like, how like dramatic the song was that, yeah, it, it gave me that, that like thing, you know, I mean, when I was like four years old, but it gave me that well, thing of like wanting to like have a microphone. The Lobombo soundtrack as well. I believe that, yeah. was, a big one. that was a big one in my house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that comes up a lot too, like greatest soundtracks. For me, it's a tough one because The Crow is my favorite movie ever, and that is an incredible soundtrack, but I got to go less than zero, hmm. which isn't on digital uh, service providers for some reason, but that's Bangles' Hazy Shade of Winter, Roy Orbison, the song that Danzig wrote for or Roy Orbison. I don't know that song. I have to check yeah. that song out. Oh, so great. Slayer doing Inagata De Vida, which is like, <laughs> which is like, it's like 30 seconds shorter than Inagata De Vida because it's faster. Uh, Poison covering Kiss and uh, yeah, LL Cool J going back to Cali. That was on there. But yeah, that was, that was a Rick Rubin. Like he was the uh, Svengali in charge of organizing all of that. And he put Danzig who he had just signed with Roy Orbison. And then that ended up in like this, that song kicked off this Roy Orbison like late career resurgence where he then had another record that had like big hits and stuff. And there's the, and, and if, if we're not counting who killed Marilyn, there's the first Danzig solo song on there. The, the less than zero, the title track is credited to Glenn Danzig and the power and fury orchestra. Oh, I've heard that song. That song. That's awesome. crazy. Oh, it's yeah, so yeah. great. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. And it was like, Rick had gone to him and said, I, I write me a song for like a, a a female singer, like kind of a 50s ballad, but with like a Motown soulful vocal. And that was a song Glenn wrote. And that was the demo. And people at the label apparently heard the demo and they were like, 
we like this vocal on the demo. Who's that person? Just leave that on there. And so that's the demo that's actually on the record, which is pretty amazing. I also, uh, the song you wrote for Johnny Cash, I love a lot too. Yeah. What's that, like 1977 to 1994 ish, will we say for Glenn Danzig? Like just perfection, just nonstop perfection. <laughs> it's a good run. It's a good yeah. run. Yeah, it's a good little window. That was just the only thing I'll say about Danzig is when I first got into him, like I, and same thing for Rollins. I had, didn't realize those guys were already in the game for like 20 years when I had first heard of them. You know, I first, I was just young. So I just found out about them in the 90s, but those guys were already in the game for years when I'd found them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's crazy to think about, I mean, obviously it has to do with the age that you are and, and you know, when you're 15, five years is a third of your life. But I remember, yeah, as a teenager, you know, I'm, I'm in high school in like the late eighties and early nineties and minor threat and black flag and the misfits and all that seemed so long ago. And now you look back and you're like, yeah, that was like 10 years before, or in some cases <laughs> like less, you know, and you think about things now that were, that were, you know. 20, 30 years ago that seem closer than, than that seemed at the time. So let's go around and do uh, Metallica. Where does Metallica enter into the picture for you, Mr. Brodsky? I mean, with the shirt, obviously we were talking about, but, but yeah, where, where did, uh, <laughs> where did you first uh, get a taste of the music? One of my best friends in the neighborhood that I grew up in uh, had an older sister who was dating this guy that looked like um, kind of like that dude, Graham from, um, Heavy metal parking lot. The guy that's like, my name's Graham, like Grandma Dope. <laughs> he looked just like that dude. He was super cool. He played guitar. He was like hung out without a shirt on and he had like a metal cassette collection. We had to be covert about sneaking in to grab cassettes of his and use our dual cassette machine to dub copies of stuff. And so that's how I got a copy of Ride the Lightning one of my first memories of like really connecting with that record was uh, was on a vacation to Cape Cod with my family. And one night they were like, we're gonna do lobster for dinner. And I was like, cool, that's great. I've never had lobster before. And so when I realized that that meant actually bringing a live lobster back to the cottage we were staying at and boiling it alive, I was so freaked out that, um, you know, they got the lobster, they brought it back and I got real upset and I started crying my eyes out and I like ran into my room and I slammed the door and I cranked Ride the Lightning as loud as I could. Um, and then of course, like that calmed me down and I came out of my room and I was like, man, that smells pretty good. Can I have some? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so later on, Another interesting, funny little connection with Metallica that was sort of part of my trajectory as a musician was when I started taking guitar lessons, I was working with this older gentleman whose name was John Zaykowski, and he was this really great blues guitar player. At the time, I was 13, and he was maybe in his 40s or 50s. You know, after several months of working with John, I got to a point where I felt like I kind of knew everything I thought that I needed to know in order to start a band. Like to me, that was the next step with my musical direction or journey. And I wasn't a hundred percent sure. And I also really, I really liked working with John. So I didn't really know how to break the news to him that I was feeling this way. But um, the thing that kind of did it for me was 
I went in for a lesson one day and John was telling me about this bass student he had. And he's like, yeah, this kid that I'm working with who's playing bass, uh, he brought in this Metallica record and he, he wanted me to help transcribe this song from uh, this record. It's just a bass solo and there's mistakes everywhere and the, the bass is all distorted and I can't tell what the hell is going on. And of course I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I'm just thinking like, that's it. I'm done with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, John, but time to move on. And, and hey, there's obviously something to be said for, I mean, especially now, who, who knew how, how perfect things would get, but something to be said for, yeah, scrappiness and vibe and mistakes. And uh, it first... was his first take. <laughs> yeah, based solo take one. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. You know, the first Sepultura album, the guitars are out of tune because they just didn't know like you're supposed to tune your guitars <laughs> so it's just like out of tune guitars but i mean it sounds incredible it's still a great record of chaos so adam where did metallica enter the picture for you was i, I imagine kind of a natural progression from kiss you know it's funny i was in the i was into kiss and I, to be honest this someone i saw wear their shirt that i have on right now which I didn't know was in the video at the time, but someone, his, his name was Billy and he had this shirt. He came into school and like, just kind of him wearing this shirt was like, I was, I was very attracted to it. Like trying to figure, figure it out, I guess. And, you know, trying to look at their faces like that, you know, James looking real mean on this shirt. <laughs> and then on the back with the album covers, he sat in front of me. So I just stared at these album covers all day at school. And that was really thought provoking, especially being in a kiss and looking at all this different sort of artwork with the cross and especially kill them all because I was young. It really was like, oh, my God, what the hell is this? What is this all about? So I was definitely interested seeing this shirt around school. And I was like, what is this all about? And then uh, basically it's my mom's best friend's daughter. She's kind of like a cousin of mine. We call her a cousin, but she's not really my cousin. Becky Stone. She like, like the had, Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, Christopher's not really Tony's nephew, but you know, yeah, it's Carmela's just, cousin. You know, you know it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, she had the single for Metallica um, one and that's the first and then she had the video cassette it was a video single for it too and she played that for me and that like it scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it it really like disturbed me but I also was like wanting to see it again you know and I, the, I remember the biggest thing was seeing behind Lars drum set and his feet going like double kick like that was like yeah. transformative you know what I mean I, it was like oh my god like this is I need to get more of this I need to get these records I need to digest this stuff but that's that that moment seeing that video I was like I need to find out more about this band and get into this and it, it, was, it was seeing that video you know that's what really was like oh I gotta get these records right that reminds me of my, my older brother who's, who's into rock and a lot of good rock music but never never fought you know I, I veered off when I got into metal and, and later hardcore I remember watching that video with him and he was and I, it always sticks out my, my brother going like why does a drummer like why does he act like it everything hurts him he's like mm, I gotta hit the cymbal ow I'm gonna, oh. and I was just like I don't know it looks cool <laughs> it's like his face always looks like he's in pain when he's playing I'm like Oh, he's, he's feeling it he's in the moment i don't know your perception of them is like they're so dark and angry and you know years later you, you feel like they're kind of like these quirky guys you know especially kirk hammett this quirky yeah. comic book guy but back then they were scary as fuck you know absolutely <laughs> and that and that imagery and that iconography yeah as you said i mean yeah and again very similar to kiss because kiss had that like you know 
you can get lost in those album covers or obviously like a maiden album cover with all the detail and all that and and yeah it seems like these otherworldly beings who just like you know disappear into smoke and fly back to their castle after the show <laughs> and then yeah and then you later in life you're like and, and and in a lot of cases like metallica's it gets even cooler and better the more you sort of learn about their quirks and their their human sides not always the For case sure, with yeah. some bands but yeah you understand it more all right sir speaking of drums yeah i mean it, it's pretty much the same i mean the one video really blew my mind when i saw it the first time i mean i was come home after school and you know hang out and kind of commandeer my grandfather's plush couch chair thing that he had sitting right in front of the tv and they would just let me watch mtv all day until my parents picked me up and uh, i remember that came on pretty much like i my grandmother had made me a grilled cheese sandwich and i sat down to watch mtv and one came on and I was like in the midst of eating this sandwich and then like the footage of the of Johnny or whatever that guy is <laughs> like just nodding the Morse code and shit like I was like, I'm going to fucking puke, you know, <laughs> and then like later on in the video when it gets really intense with all the double bass stuff and they look so pissed and so intense and so fucking cool, you know. And that's what, like, I went from wanting to vomit to wanting to just watch it on repeat as much as I could. And I would sit there waiting for it every day after school, waiting for that video to come on, at, along with other ones. But that was definitely one of the one of the ones that I, I couldn't wait to see every day, you know? I love the, the grilled cheese sense memory. <laughs> I, like, to this day, when I eat a grilled cheese, it's like, ah, I think I'm okay. I can do this. You know, <laughs> you're just, every bite, you're like, kill me. Please yeah. kill me. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, well, I, I got to say something that I was very inspired by. And uh, I just, I mean, it's one of my vivid memories of Caven was, you know, obviously, and this is, this is a whole other rabbit hole, but, you know, for me, my journey was like, I was into rock and punk and new wave, thanks to my older brother, and went head first into thrash, kind of leapt over hair metal right into thrash, and then was into hardcore by the, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, and after that. By the time we had started our band that played shows with Caven, we were all, everyone in that band were, we were all people who had grown up and like had mullets and been thrashers and then had gotten into hardcore and then were at this point i don't want to say we were coming out of hardcore but it was like we were really embracing our inner hesher and of course this is like you know i mean i'm like 23 and at that point i thought i was like washed up already you know like i'm starting another band i'm like super old uh but it, it was it was just a very interesting time because the hardcore scene was still very much married to that you know uniform look and everyone's songs are about a certain number of things and it's the same bands who play shows together and, and, and it's and there's a wonderful side to that that's really beautiful and special and amazing and I'm not I'm not knocking that but just kind of the place where we were we were you know like our guitar player had long hair again you know and like and we <laughs> and we would wear like metal shirts and it was I don't want to say that we were some kind of pioneers or anything, but I just, I just remember it being really frowned upon and people not being into it, you know, like, and people thinking like, who are these like weird 
Indiana Rednecks and like, why are they on this show? And we were all like, no, like we were hardcore kids like last year. <laughs> we just, we're just re-embracing who we were. And so this all is a long-winded way of bringing me around to Cave-In because not only was there this kind of scene happening where there was, you know, I started getting turned on to bands like Botch and Coalesce and uh, the National Acrobat and Kentucky and obviously, you know, Dead Guy kind of, kind of predating all of us, but it was this sort of emerging the way scenes happen in music and movements happen in, in music and, and Caven being number one at, at the forefront of that. Number two, me really discovering the band and us meeting you guys during the creative eclipses era, like just before Jupiter, which is, which is, it gives me goosebumps telling you guys this because it's literally one of my, like, I mean, it's in my top 20 albums of all time, Jupiter. It's just, it, it would, I fell in love with it then. And it's just one that's, just sticks with you and you can you just hear the first couple seconds and you're immediately like just get a you know what records like that can do for you and and so I was so I felt so validated when you know some cool guy hardcore kids were telling me that the new cave-in sucks and that they used to be super heavy and awesome and now they're not and oh by the way you're like a Metallica guy have you ever heard this and that medley was just like, I wanted to like, oh yeah, <laughs> grab the sky and shake it, you know, because it was just like, yes. <laughs> but it just felt so like validating, like, <laughs> no, it's okay to like this stuff still. You know what I mean? Like we, and it was even cooler because here you were as artists at this evolutionary point where you were, you know, breaking free from traditions and, and uh, you know, uh, being iconoclasts within that certain subgenre, and then on the other end of the spectrum to be like, no, these guys also fully embraced being metalheads. This isn't this isn't a dirty word. It's not lame to like <laughs> be into Metallica. So there's no question in there. <laughs> that was just a a big uh, data dump that I wanted to to put on you guys. It was a very very pivotal like, and, and it kept our little band going. I think a, a little longer the more we met guys like you and and Isis and Dillinger and just that little group of people where we'd all kind of have these similar trajectories of like we were into metal and then we were into the hardcore scene and now we're like in our early 20s going like what am I exactly and what do I want to do and I feel like a lot of, there were a lot of us in like those really same kind of places in life and this was cool that I felt like we had a little unofficial community and that all those bands I just named sound really different from each other and yet there's something intangible that i think unites them all yeah huh. I, I think you touch upon something kind of interesting because uh we've talked about this amongst ourselves but when we were first getting into hardcore music you know sort of coming off of like pure towny metalheads and then embracing alternative rock and grunge and then the mixture of those things and then through that discovering the world of like hardcore punk as we knew it with like bands like Converge, Piebald, the Merrimack Valley hardcore scene and all the happenings within that, we went through something called Metal Denial. <laughs> and Metal Denial was basically what you're talking about where it was like just shedding this thing that seemed like it didn't have a place in our lives. I think morally mm. that was really sort of um, the kicker because discovering like hardcore punk with things like straight edge, vegetarianism, veganism, 
all sorts of social activism, you know, sexual liberation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that you didn't see talked about on the forefront of like popular heavy music. Yeah. It was like, well, fuck that. I don't need that. I need this other thing that's teaching me how to live life and fully embracing that and denying everything else. And uh, for me, it was that way for a little while. And I guess the reckoning with just being like, well, you know what, that shit doesn't matter ultimately. Like good music is good music and let's do a Metallica medley and fucking, you know, call it a day. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, you, you do bring up something important that I, I, I didn't mean to gloss over, which is, yeah, I didn't even think about that. But of course, I think we were giving a healthy rejection to a lot of elements of heavy metal culture that uh, were, shall we say, less than progressive <laughs> or that were maybe just primal and, and or celebratory or, you know, on their best days because we were, yeah, that the hardcore scene does bring with it a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are happening in culture in recent years that I feel like all of us had like a, a sneak preview. <laughs> Can, you know, it's like Twitter is heart attack fanzine in 2022. <laughs> for better or worse a lot of those politics have uh, infiltrated mainstream society and in most cases for the better certainly well-intentioned and in some cases a bit overboard which was exactly how it was in the hardcore scene (laughs) you know there were like well-intentioned people who had these good ideas and then there were some people that were uh, a little overboard but yeah that's important i hadn't really thought about it that way but but yeah certainly kind of cloaking yourself in and also all the different things that exposed us to i mean how many civilian situations do we find ourselves in where you're suddenly the guy that knows something about harry krishna's (laughs) and all the normies you're talking to have no idea how you would know that you don't even know how to explain how you would know that (laughs) you ever heard 108 (laughs) yeah Yeah. 108 are so good yeah so that Metallica medley, what was putting that together like? I know it's casting your mind back pretty far, but choosing which songs you were going to put in there and, and how you were going to string them together and what was the thought process there and the conversations like? Well, Dave Scrod had just joined the band. Um, so we had a new vocalist at the time, Dave. And I think we were just trying to sort of find our way like maybe any normal band would that has a new member or feels like, it's hitting the reset button. You just do covers and you sort of come together on the influences that you sort of agree upon. And um, for us and Dave, that was early Metallica. And I don't really remember putting it together, but I remember having a lot of fun just recording it and blowing off steam. And, um, you know, at that time with Dave, things were very exciting and we felt like we had a new lease on the band and, you know, it was the summer that we graduated high school as well, I think, when all that was starting to come together. So like summer of 1997. So that was an exciting time as well. Just, you know, some of us were getting ready to move out of Methuen, the town that we grew up in and moved to Boston and life was changing. And I think maybe doing this medley in a way was sort of like holding on to our mm. sort of metal childhood roots in a way and you know honoring that somehow yeah and you know you just described the garage days ep to a t <laughs> new member good way to gel and break things in you know do it and blowing <laughs> off steam and 
less pressure of making your own record. Yeah, it's like the exact scenario. Having fun. Yes, exactly. Having fun. Do you remember what the reactions were like from peers and and uh, fans and Caven listeners and, and so on as that started to get out there? Because it was it's like a hidden track, which is a, a lost art now. Yeah, <laughs> I actually I went to listen to it today, just prepping for this conversation because awesome. I hadn't heard it in so long. And yeah, so I went to iTunes and was looking at the track listing and I didn't see it there. And I had a moment of panic. I was because, you know, when we Caven signed to relapse recently, we had this whole situation where we had to round up all our music and send it to the label and get all the track names right and organize everything. And, you know, I was at the helm for quite a bit of that process. And so I had a moment of panic today when I saw the track listing and I was like, where the fuck is the Metallica medley? Come on. Like, I thought I fucked something up. But then, like you said, I remember it was like, oh, wait a minute. So I click on the last song on the record, which is called Crambone. And I see that the track length is like 11 minutes long. Yeah. I'm like, ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how it ends up on the on digital, right? Is yeah, you just you look at the last song on, on one of those bands' albums and it's like, wait a minute, 26 minutes? <laughs> it's like, yeah, because there's there's 10 minutes of dead air. Yeah, yeah, that's killer. But yeah, but do you do you remember what people what people had to say about it at the time? I mean, I certainly don't because you just bringing it up just now reminded me that we did it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I remember I'll playing, have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> I remember playing it live a few times and people being really stoked on it. Um, I mean, I also remember, I remember playing it. We might have even did it up until like when Caleb joined, you know, and with doing it as a four piece. We did it for a while, like off and on. Wow. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I never like, I, I never got to see you guys do it because you were yeah. like, fight fire with fire. I think the riff for four horsemen is in there. Uh, I, I forget what other yeah. riffs are in there. Creeping uh, death. Creep at death. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so um, I would imagine it was just riffs that you just knew anyway, right? Like it wasn't so much learning. It was like just stitching together. And riffs that we really liked. That four horsemen yeah. riff we, we loved. You know what I mean? Riffs we really loved. That's a Dave Mustaine riff right there. I was listening yeah. to uh, Kill Em All this morning and I couldn't believe how I never noticed how much Dave had a hand in writing that stuff. I mean, the right. whole that whole record is like filled with crazy Dave Mustaine riffs. It really is riffs and and um, and even the solos and obviously not to take anything away from the great Kirk Hammett. But a lot of those solos, while they're, they're different than the Mustaine solos, they tend to start the same. So yeah. it's like he would do sort of whatever the first progression was and then go off somewhere else. Yeah, I, I noticed that you could actually tell some of his arrangements too. Like there's a lot of similarities between how some of the rhythms, especially like you said at the beginning of songs, how that stuff made it into Megadeth stuff mm -hmm. later on, you know? I, yeah. I And I'd never realized it back in, you know, when I would listen to that stuff religiously, you know? Yeah. So it was, even, it was cool even, to notice. Even when I was listening to both bands religiously uh, back in the day, I didn't realize until way later, like, oh, Hangar 18 is Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's just like uh -huh. straight up just you know it's a little faster but it's the same uh, yeah and I, I remember watching uh when they did the 30th anniversary shows i guess 11 years ago now and they had mustaine come out and play with them for the, the first time you know other than the big four shows where it was like all four bands but when it was just him and the band lars was introducing jump in the fire and he was like you know dan mustaine 
was in a band before we met him called Panic and he brought some songs over from that band that he had written and one of those songs was called Jump in the Fire and it was the first time I was like oh that was like a whole song yeah <laughs> you know the lyrics were slightly modified after the fact but like it was even like lyrics like top to bottom like because as a kid you know you look at liner notes and you see his name last on a few songs and you're like you don't know how, what any of that means so I just thought like oh he wrote like a little riff maybe in that song or something. And then like, yeah, you find that out about that song and you're like, Oh, okay. I kind of get a little more now why he was so pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the episode you did with Gary Holt and him talking about um, creeping death, how that's an Exodus lyric in the bridge section there. Yeah. And that, that was really interesting. I never knew that. And he had such a funny sort of attitude about the whole thing like it was it yeah. was very entertaining i, I love that episode awesome and, and yeah and knock on wood i was amazed there's always episodes i put up where I, you know i want blabbermouth to pick up on something and drive people to the episode that was an episode where i was like please blabbermouth don't listen to this and i he, it somehow <laughs> went under his radar because there's the part where he's like yeah carrie king sat me down and got out a calculator and was like here's how much publishing they owe you on that song estimated <laughs> i was like yeah this is this is not the blabbermouth headline that i want um i was just gonna say those mustaine when mustaine played with metallica there's some youtube footage of him playing with metallica and he is ready to do it man he is ready <laughs> and stoked. And yeah. is, he's just ready you know and it's fun to watch <laughs> it is it is fun to watch and it's fun to watch the rest of them enjoy it because you can tell they're like all right yeah that's cool like we're, yeah. you know he's getting his, he's getting his moment yeah yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and, I, and I, I, will, I won't belabor this because people who listen to this have heard it a million times, but Megadeth was actually my entry to metal. I had a friend who was really into hair metal and he bought Peace Cells on cassette by mistake, thinking that it was like, a, it was gonna be like a poison record or something. And was like, what is this? This is garbage and gave it to me just to get rid of it. And that must have been a surprise for him, huh? <laughs> uh, quite a surprise for him and quite a surprise for me because I, I put it in and I'm coming right from, you know, Duran Duran, Adamant, uh, Billy Idol into popping that in the boombox and just, but yeah, it's like a, you know, if there was a movie of my life, that would be like a, a pivotal scene of me sitting in my bedroom, like in front of the boombox and <laughs> wake up dead coming out of the speakers. And just going, like, what is happening? What is, yeah. is this even music? And then just just full on and then yeah and then metallica to me was like oh the guy from megadeth we used to be in another band they're called metallica and garage days was actually the current release so the first metallica tape that i went to the store and bought was all cover songs <laughs> and so those those were just Meta killing joke you know those were just metallica songs as far as as i understood it in the very very beginning well that's i mean that garage days is how i took you know that record or you know that group of songs was i didn't realize that most of them were covers i thought there were a couple covers on there but other ones who were just originals i was like this is sick you know yeah but then you know you start to realize that they're from other bands and you're like oh okay and you start digging into those other bands and opens up a whole world yeah and you look at the uh, set list from their very first couple of shows and it's like you know a song from panic a song from james's and ron's band leather charm and then like you know one metallica song and like eight diamond head songs you know it's just like they're like a tribute band at those first few shows which is awesome because you know for us now it's like it's relatable you know yeah, like, at, the, oh. at the at the first cave-in show we covered a threadbare song and let's see we did ignition by threadbare Snap and then face. we did 
Looking Glass Self by Snapcase. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Dude, the first Burn It Down show, we didn't have a name and we only had four songs. And so we played the four songs we had and a cover of No Spiritual Surrender. And nice. so the picture on the back of our first seven inch is like this, you know, crowd sing along like awesome photo and it's because it's taken during no spiritual yeah. surrender <laughs> so it's like, you know, little, oh my god little, little trick out there for you young hardcore yeah. bands yeah. <laughs> play a cover that everyone loves yeah you get a great photo of people loving your band <laughs> that's like that's like the danzig mother video in a nutshell like metallica takes him out on tour and he uses yeah. all that footage to make the mother video yeah slips in a little audience track underneath it calls it live boom i thought danzig was fucking huge back then yeah dude i never made that connection that's so true and it's 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 crazy like you know when i had um i had blitz and dd verney on the podcast at different points i think i had dd on and and one of the things about overkill is one of my first metal shows was slayer motorhead and overkill in 1988 and overkill had like this drum riser that they had built themselves that had like the logo kind of carved out of it and these green lights that came out from behind it. And so it lit up their green overkill logo and, you know, knowing what we know now, and it's like, they're the first of three on this tour and whatever. But as a kid, like, I just, I just thought overkill was as big as Slayer. I couldn't tell the difference, you know, like all that like perceived value of like, you know, making a little, just a little bit of effort in your stage show, like goes a, a long way. Cause yeah, it was, I didn't have any concept that, any of those bands were different or that there's any reason why they played in a certain order yeah so yeah kudos to danzig for getting that one over on us <laughs> it, it worked and that was that and that was a song that had already been released as a single and had a video and it come and gone and then becomes this huge hit like what four years later five years later yeah, it's, it seems like a good symbiotic relationship there. You know, Metallica covers oh, yeah. Misfits and then Danzig's oh, yeah. like, cool, I'll just steal your audience from my video. Yeah, oh no, it's it's definitely it's definitely fair play. And the way that Metallica wore all three of his band's merch, I mean, that was, that's how I heard of Sam Hain. I was <laughs> to see Metallica wearing Sam Hain stuff all the time. So yeah, and my, I don't, I don't think I have told this on the podcast before, but my, my entryway to hardcore was almost identical to, I had these two best friends. One was a metalhead, one was a punk. And the metalhead friend, the, the heart, hair metal friend, gave me Megadeth because he bought it by mistake. And that I became a diehard thrash person for the next few years. And then the punk friend bought uh, New York Hardcore The Way It Is compilation on Revelation by mistake, thinking it was punk bands. And was like, what the hell is this nonsense? And it was the same thing. He gave it to me just to get rid of it. And I was like, what is this? this is amazing. And that was how I, you know, heard Gorilla Biscuits and Bold and Youth of Today and all those bands like for the first time. Awesome. It's from that. So I don't know if is that, I guess, I guess a Spotify playlist would be the, the modern corollary to these compilations and movie soundtracks. I don't know. I guess that's, yeah, I that's guess it's would... like curated playlist, right? Yeah. That's how you would discover things. That's the first time. Um, It's the first time I heard Converge back in the day, the uh, endless fight soundtrack. I heard divinity and it, you know, looking at the addresses, I heard overcast for the first time and Converge the, the endless fight compilation, which, you know, it was a CD, you know, back then that was those compilations really, you would listen to every band and really check it out and like go, go even further. But that's the first time I heard Converge was on a compilation, you know? 
I feel like the Ozfest era, somewhere around there, is when people trying to hand you a CD as you walked out was what you were like avoiding. <laughs> like that's like there was like some moment where it turned where it's like no one wanted those. It's like just, here you throw this out. Yeah, <laughs> just littering. Uh, so I I want to ask each of you and uh, and don't be ashamed if the answer is never because that actually comes up a lot because a lot of most of the people I have on here are touring musicians and uh, you don't always get a chance to see bands but um, let's do uh, seeing Metallica live who's got who's got stories or who remembers the the first time if ever I could start because my story is kind of lame actually but <laughs> the first time I saw them was uh, when Caven played uh, I. Th- believe it was rock and ring in germany giant festival there and they were headlining the main stage uh i was actually able to get up in the sound booth and watch them from the sound sound booth uh but that was that was the only the one and only time i've ever seen metallica unfortunately do you remember about what year that was uh that would have been like the load reload era oh okay no i think think it was oh three oh is it oh three yeah yeah San Anger. So it would have been it would have been Trujillo on bass. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yep. I mean that show, I that show that they were playing in front of like an ocean of people. That yeah, was it was a massive. Huge yeah. show. That was a huge show. And I say I was watching them from the sound desk, but the sound desk felt like it was a mile away. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the sound desk is the size of like, you know, a, a a box like a the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Adam, do you remember going to see Metallica during uh, the Load Reload era? Yeah, that's the first time I saw them was the Load Reload era, which they played all those fucking, you know, not my favorite material. I don't want to talk <laughs> smack. You know? But I also remember they played, you know, one, they played all the stuff I wanted to hear as well. And I remember, I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, my God, James is so much louder than everybody else. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that was my that was my first impression of seeing loud. I'm like, oh, Kurt sounds like he has one amp and James sounds like he has 10 amps. <laughs> And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then there's the famous thing of I don't I don't know if it's totally true, but it's come out in recent years that supposedly Lars only has James in his in ears. Like that's it. Like oh, his yeah. monitors are just, just rhythm guitar. <laughs> it's like well, I mean, I have to say that, that what else do you need? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the first time I really considered, you know, rhythm guitarists as being like mm. the pivotal member of the band, you know. I mean, you know, you hear all the solos and all the classic rock bands with all the solos and shit. But I mean, just actually noticing James is playing just rhythm wise and actually paying attention to it after that. It was it was mind blowing. You know, much like we were talking about Kiss and the different generations and the the way the branches spring off from the tree. uh, When I had uh, Dino from Fear Factory on and he was talking about how just that just that double bass breakdown in one the way that the riff lines up in synchronization with the kick drum he was like what if there was a whole band that did that Hmm. what if the band was just constantly like the rhythm playing and the kick drum were like on top of each other and that's fear factory (laughs) you know it's just like (laughs) yeah that's the power of metallica you know like (laughs) one little one little moment of a metallica song can create you know a whole band and subgenre i mean what a moment right yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. i I remember from that show at great woods they did a medley of um kill em all songs and they got they came out and they had acoustic guitars yeah they did like 
jump in the fire maybe like or four, you know, they did four horsemen that. acoustic yeah 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 yeah, yeah. They're like, we're gonna try something different you know and it's like okay you guys have been doing this shit for years now i get it but this is my first time seeing you and <laughs> love to see you fucking rip this pretty hard but it's all right it's cool you know yeah <laughs> that's always the balance right and you know this is uh i'm about to do a really cheesy journalist segue here but you know caven has a new record and uh you know, you're a band now that's been, that's established, that's been around, that has a, a discography, that has different eras, you know, different, different people probably like different eras of Caven more than other eras. So how do you put together a balanced set list that's like, okay, you love the really, really new stuff is the stuff you're most excited to play. And then there's, there's also the consideration of like, someone might be seeing us for the very first time who's loved us from the very beginning, you know, like how do you make those decisions? Like that seems like that's always the more, the, the further a band gets along and the more records you have, I think the harder obviously it gets to, to make those set lists. What's the, what's the, what's the trick for Kevin? Um, I would say right now for us is it's a good thing, you know, Nate having Nate in the band, you know, he's a newer member and he's been a fan of our band for a while. So he's kind of like, these are the songs I want to play. And these are the, these are the songs I want to hear. So let's do these. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he, and, he can be the newstead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and wood, you know, we played woodwork in the past few years and that's all because of Nate inflatable dream. That's because of Nate, you know, Nate, Nate kind of has been guiding, guiding us of like what songs he wants to hear as a Caven fan playing bass in Caven now, you know, that's great. That's great to have to, when bands can get the perspective of someone who's in it, but has been outside of it. So how, so how do you balance you know, new songs. Cause there, I mean, and, and, and don't misunderstand me. There's multiple bands where I, as a fan would love to hear, you know, maybe not necessarily when Maiden's like, we're doing the whole album start to finish the new one. But, but, you know, there are certain bands where it's like, I, I love new record. Like if I were seeing cave in tomorrow, I would want to hear a lot of the new record, but then it, it still is that balance where it's like, there's certain songs. If you go to a cave show and you didn't hear that song, you're going to leave disappointed. So, yeah. yeah well, becomes- I will I will say that um, the experience of doing Decibel Fest and relearning the entirety of the Until Your Heart Stops record was interesting. You know, Adam and I were just talking about this earlier where the band finished a new record, Heavy Pendulum. And then pretty much right after that, we went like back 20 years into our like teenage hardcore minds to start fucking dusting off the cobwebs for until your heart stops a lot of the shit we hadn't played in several years at least one of the songs we've never played live um so that was interesting and we turned down decibel a few times <laughs> they'd asked us to do this before and we just um weren't in the right headspace but it's it's cool that not only did they give us another chance and another opportunity but in taking it, we reacquainted ourselves with songs like Ebola, End of Our Rope is a Noose, Halo of Flies. And I think moving forward, it's safe to say that you could see those songs become regulars in cave sets, which is pretty cool. Do you find yourself when you're getting back in that headspace and relearning your own songs like, oh, why are there so many riffs in this song? <laughs> Or, or what was this, tra- what, this transition? Really? What? Oh, yeah. Just choking on riff soup. <laughs> yes. 
the riff soup the riff soup i mean i'm you know and then you and then we also understand how metallica comes out of justice into the black album <laughs> right and then 100 percent, and how we end up seeing them doing you know acoustic encores of the old stuff you know <laughs> how can we do this different for the next six months um and then there is that natural like you know coming full circle and and, and it, it's where I hear Caven at now personally is, is I hear that you're a band that is kind of embracing all of your different eras. I hear a, a real comfort and security in your identity as a band, if that makes sense. Like, you know who you are, you know what Caven sounds like, you know, all the different things you can do. Cause there's definitely that age where you get, where you, you just, you become so, any amount of success at any level can, can be so confining because then there's expectations right out of the gate and you're like but i have so much else to offer let me show you what else i can do and it's like you got that out and now you now it's it's all it's all in there i, I think metallica is very similar in that in that way yeah i mean it's definitely been uh good for us to have gone through all those changes in the past you know 20 years uh because it kind of allows us to do you know, whatever we, we feel like doing at this point, you know, right. I think people, you know, especially newer bands, they, they're worried about, you know, I don't want to say becoming popular, but, you know, gaining momentum and gaining recognition and they, they find something that works for them and they kind of stick to it. And it's uh that maybe if you're planning on having a long-term band, it might not be the best thing, but I mean, yeah. who can really, you know, when we started the band, I, I wasn't thinking we were going to be still together in 25 years. You know, that, I think that sort of thing just kind of happens if it does. Absolutely. I think that that's very kind of a universal truth of this thing of ours, if you will. Um, I, I know I, I don't want to keep you guys forever. I could hang out and I could talk about Metallica all night. I mean, that was really how the, the podcast started. Was it, it became a running joke of at what point during an interview will I bring up Metallica? And then I was like, why don't I turn that? That's a podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> if they know that's all what I want to talk about from the outset. There's only one Metallica thing that I think Steve should talk about. That, that Steve, do you remember when that guy gave you all those Metallica bootlegs when we were living oh, yeah. in Citrus Suites? That's a good Metallica story. Go on. I do remember that. Yeah. So this was at the time that Caven was writing the Antenna record. And we were all staying at the Citrus Suites in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. We were right on the beach. I don't know how the conversation started, but at some point, maybe I was wearing a Metallica shirt. I must have been because what else would have struck up this conversation? Or maybe, maybe it's that um, whoever was working the door, I don't know, there may have been some small talk like, what are you here for? Oh, I'm in a band making a record. Oh, cool. And in any case, I get into a conversation with this guy who is working the front door at the Citrus Suites. And he is, a, he is like an insane Metallica fan. Like he's met them like 15 or 20 times at this point. And this is back in 2001. So I'm sure that number has skyrocketed since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, he was just so excited to talk about Metallica with me. And I did my best to keep up with him because this guy was like way ahead of me. He offered to make me a bunch of copies of like rare stuff that he had of theirs. And, uh, you know, it was probably like, have you heard this? Have you, you ever heard Cliff's last show? Or, you know, have you heard the Rough Justice stuff? And, you know, this is 
2001 maybe so yeah hard to say like what was available on the internet and look i wasn't super savvy with stuff i'm not even sure that i ever downloaded a single track on napster you know what i mean like i i I didn't yeah and not because i you know yeah i just i wasn't savvy and i didn't have the high speed enough i didn't have the patience to wait overnight for a song (laughs) yeah exactly um i'm right there with you so this guy just unloaded like 30 cassettes of all things Metallica. Like I said, Cliff's first show with the band, Cliff's last show with the band, Rough Justice, this live record, this soundboard recording. And it was- Stain's last show. Yeah, yeah, it was so expansive. And (laughs) we were just so stoked driving around in our rental cars, you know, going to our rehearsal space or wherever while we were living out in Santa Monica at that time and just combing through this fucking treasure trove of rare Metallica stuff. And especially the Rough Justice was really, really mind blowing to hear the skeletal formation of that record and how wild and scrappy it was. All the different guitar solos that Kirk eventually went and Mm re-recorded. James going just doing vocal ideas like you know before there were lyrics to a lot of this stuff yeah so fucking cool like a real nice like insight into that band at a a time when you know it was still hard to find that stuff yeah you didn't get much reverse engineering and people didn't want to people were afraid to be vulnerable in front of their audience and show, you know, that that's vulnerable to show, to let somebody hear like, nah, 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 you know, but they were like, they were by the black album era, they were putting out some of those demos as B-sides on like European CD singles and stuff. And yeah, yeah I always thought that was very cool to, to where by the time some kind of monster happens, it's like, well, this is just a natural evolution of how inside they've allowed us to be this whole time. And this is, yeah. this is, this is going to be hard to watch, but that's life. Speaking know? of that movie, did you ever see the moment at the very beginning? I'm sure you can probably imagine the scene, but it's, uh, it's when all the journalists and writers, people from the press, they get together in that mm-hmm. room to hear St. Anger for the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. and presumably write about it, review it, whatever, give their thoughts and impressions. And in that scene, there's a journalist who's wearing a Caven t-shirt. That's right. Of course. I actually spoke to him earlier this week for a different interview. No way. He's like, that yeah. was me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those are those moments. Like I've rewatched the office with my kids like 15 times or something over the last few years. There's a scene where, where Dwight takes Ryan out on his first sales call. And when they're driving to Shroot Farms, I think it might even be the first time we see Shroot Farms, Dwight's listening to Life of Agony. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, yeah, it's like that, or whatever weird club we're all in. <laughs> you know, it's just like, there's those little things where we're like, ah. And yeah, the cave shirt and some kind of monster. I actually remember that from seeing the movie at Sundance. So when were, what year were you guys in Santa Monica doing Antenna? Was that 2001 or was that 2000? Because that record came out in 03, right? Yeah. So was, so was it 01 I think it was or the fall of 2001 that we were living there. Okay. Yeah. yeah then we, then we and, moved to Oakwoods in kind of like, I believe, 02 for a little while. 
We were like okay. two separate spots. That's one of the things that I continually rediscover through the course of doing this, you know, podcast, hundred plus episodes now that Metallica's, you know, for so many of us, they're, it's just always there in different moments of our lives. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, think about what a pivotal time that was for Cave-In making the antenna record and, you know, and then to go back to the teenage years and to think about the medley and, to, you know, all these different parts of your life where like there's some kind of Metallica something <laughs> that you can remember to connect it to. It's just, it's yeah, I mean, even thing. like to this day, if I'm having a really shitty day, like I'll put on, you know, lightning or master of puppets and like those songs just get you amped, you know, and it kind of snaps you out of whatever shitty mood you're in, you know, or it yeah. makes you want to like just double down and fight whatever it is that's bothering you, you know, but it's such a pick me up even still to this day. And like you said, I mean, I, you know, first heard them way back when I don't know how old I was, but I was young, you know, and it's still like it still has an impact. When I was listening to Kill 'Em All this morning, it was like, yeah, I'm like going nuts in my basement, you know, like, like I was a little kid again. <laughs> and all of those different records are, they're all Metallica, but they're also all, all very different, you know. Like there's, I mean, Kill 'Em All and Reload, to Death Magnetic and Hardwired to Justice, like they, all, they have very different sounds, production values, uh, attitudes, techniques. You know, there's, there's certainly similarities that anchor them into being what they are you know Hetfield's right hand and Lars's style of playing and but yeah it, it is a really diverse catalog which I think also really blazed the trail for bands like Cave-In to not be afraid to reinvent continually and, and try new things and also not be afraid to embrace things from the past which I think is a, a later in life lesson for us from Metallica <laughs> you know we're only so so busy trying to trying to do the next thing and be the next thing that we we don't appreciate the thing that we worked on before. Speaking of which, I think we were ships passing in the night in Santa Monica because I was working in Santa Monica starting in like April 2002. So yeah, I have no idea that you guys were there. If you were there, you might have, <laughs> you probably weren't weren't there anymore, but I don't know. Close. Yeah, close we, would have been at, we would have been at Oakwood at that point, 2002. You know. and o- Oakwood's the place, right, where a lot of like celebrity kids stayed and obviously different bands and stuff too but it's like a yeah like you know celebrities that go through divorce they end up at oakwood (laughs) yeah Yeah. i somebody told me there's a documentary about oakwood that's about like the the stage moms and the the child actors that come out during like pilot season and you know try to like get on some show or whatever i guess that's like the place but it's a trip man i mean it's it's certainly a strange place um it was funny for a bunch of methuen kids to be living there you know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh it, the, probably the constant feeling of of imposter syndrome like somebody's gonna find out we're not supposed to be here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even though you are supposed to be there um okay so i i i'm, I'm sure i can guess it's gonna live somewhere in the first four records but uh before we are done and i'll go in re- uh, reverse order from before i'll start with you jr a uh, favorite Metallica record. Ooh, favorite record. Uh, probably, man, that's a tough one. Uh, I'd have to probably say uh, Master of Puppets because that record, when I put it on, takes me straight back to like reading X-Men comic books in my room, yeah. being grounded all the time <laughs> for stupid <laughs> shit. And I would just listen to Master <laughs> of Puppets and like, 
you know, really feel angsty, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that record holds probably my favorite Metallica song, which is the thing that should not be. Mm. Uh, that's such a fucking heavy song. So I guess I would pick that one. Well, HP Lovecraft in there with your X-Men. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, as we're taping this today, I should say, uh, rest in peace, Neil Adams, the great Neil Adams, who, who did some of those early X-Men runs. And Oh, I had no idea. You know, yeah, Batman, uh, the, uh, the infamous Green Lantern, Green Arrow heroine storyline from the 70s. That was Neil Adams. But wow. yeah, so the, a big, big loss to the world of comics. Uh, Mr. McGrath favorite metallic oh man it's tough it go it changed it's changed has it changed for you guys over the years it does it changes (laughs) it changes for me all the time like if you asked me five years ago i would have said lightning you know right it would have been justice for me a couple years ago you know it's right now it's between kill them all garage days and master of puppets and i guess if i had to choose if you guys would put a gun to my head (laughs) (laughs) uh probably master of puppets and i just think it's like it's like the first like heavy metal masterpiece I ever got into. Mm. I just, it had so much depth and, you know, the, the instrumental song, it just had so much to it. Uh, when I first got into it, I'm like, Oh my God, this is what heavy metal is. And, the, and all, everything you can do with it. It was the book for me, the solos, everything. Um, the record cover was very like disturbing and thought provoking. Mm. Um, you know, all the crosses on the cover, like the graveyard, the, the, uh, the lyrics about war, uh, the lyrics about you know drugs, everything about it, I, it just sucked me in. And you know another thing, when we for whatever reason, when Caleb passed away, I got really into like running and exercise again. And that record in particular, Master of Puppets, I listened to over and over again, probably for a year straight. The year after Caleb passed away, and it really it was it was like going back to what being young again. It really like amplified me and got me through a lot of runs. Um, so yeah, I'll pick Master of Puppets. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Yeah, and I, if you would have asked me during Burn It Down when we were playing shows with you, I would have said load. And that's because I was so committed to being a contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it would have upset people so much <laughs> if, you told, if you said that. Although I, I do legitimately love that record. There's a couple songs on that record in particular that are top 10 Metallica songs for me. But uh, having said that, Mr. Brodsky, favorite Metallica record. Uh, Ride the Lightning. I know it's not their best record. I mean, Master of Puppets is definitely their best record. Um, but Ride the Lightning is the first Metallica record I ever got into. And I can still remember what that dubbed cassette copy looks like. And I I remember the little glitch in the, the title track, Ride the Lightning, right before it fucking goes off with the solo and it goes cut time. Like there's the halftime solo part and then it just takes off. And it's almost like it's it's as if like whoever was like whoever was in the room while that tape was getting dubbed was so fucking pumped about the next part that happened that like (laughs) the machine got kicked or you know somebody lost their shit and so it's funny because anytime I hear that song now I'm always listening for this little glitch in that part and of course it's not there and that's kind of strange to me but just an example of how like deep that record is for me. Um, Like just not even being able to unhear that dubbed copy of it. And I I try to like save it for special moments or like times when I feel like I really need to hear it because it's such a special record to me. I don't want to ever like burn it out or kill it Mm. or overdo it. So yeah, I keep that one very precious and 
I mean, today I had fun listening to Garage Days, though. So there's, that's the thing. It's like it's all over the map. And that's sort of the beauty of that band. Just when you burn out on one record, you can just pop in another and fall in love all over again. Uh, well said. And uh, and I, I'm of the exact same opinion as you. Ride the Lightning is my favorite, while I acknowledge Puppets is the best. And then that's a big thing I've, I've, I've been hooked on for years is this idea of there's a distinction between best and favorites you know and it's like i recognize that the beatles are probably the best band of all time metallica is my favorite <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like the, you know there's certain things where it's just like no i cultural impact and but you know piece of paper like i know you know i know the as a cinephile air quotes i know that the crow isn't the greatest movie ever made but it's my favorite movie so yeah, there's, you know, there's a distinction there for sure. I, I got, I got to say, um, you know, obviously he's come up a few times and, you know, my huge, huge condolences about losing Caleb and, you know, he was, um, I, I'm sure this was true for a lot of people, but, you know, he, he was kind of the most gregarious of, of you lot. Like I remember uh, really, really you, Adam and, and Caleb being like the first guys in the band that I really like kind of started talking to and got, you know, friendly with when we would be around each other. And um, uh, about, I guess, gosh, I guess uh, 2014. So it's been a few years now, but uh, Jason McCash, uh, who was our bass player in Burn It Down and, and went on to do a band called The Gates of Slumber, who was like a incredible and i don't and I, I say that in full acknowledgement of my bias but just one of the greatest doom metal bands ever uh, a couple of their records were in decibels top five and the 40 albums of the year thing or whatever but jason passed away back in 2014 and then our, our drummer bob who was also in the gates of slumber with jason off and on he passed away as well just a couple of years ago so i can't have caven hanging with me on my podcast without um sending a huge, huge salute, love, respect to our fallen brothers. And uh, not to be a super nerd and make it about Metallica, but I feel like as, as kids, you know, I, was, my, I lost my mom when I was 11. And that's, you know, losing a parent when you're young is a really life-defining thing. And, you know, Metallica, their music, not only kind of getting you through things, but, but seeing the way that they mourned and grieved for cliff and the way that they ultimately have celebrated cliff and how he's continued to be part of the soul and spirit of that band you know i feel like that was a real another yet another uh trail that they've blazed for the rest of us to to kind of know yeah i mean that certainly certainly um played into my thoughts uh quite a bit when that event happened with caleb um you know not to make light of it or anything, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was weird drawing those comparisons with Metallica, you know, and Caven. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, sorry to hear about your loss as well. It, it's it's not easy and it's it's terrible to go through that kind of grief, you know. Um, but just you know, knowing that other people have gone through it and other people can get through it in a relatively positive way is, uh, you know, hopefully that helps other people move on from that type of, of, you know, devastation in their lives. So, I mean, and definitely Metallica was, you know, one of the first that you were aware of something like that happening. So, 
Yeah, for our parents, it was probably, you know, John Lennon. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us, even though we can't, you know, Cliff was gone by the time I discovered the band, but his mm-hmm. presence was still, you know, so massive. And I'm, I'm so happy and proud and, and stoked that Caven continues to perform and to create and to make new records. And I, I really, I think it's, it's palpable. It's, it's very much out in the forefront that, that it's, that Caleb's spirit is, is part of that and that you honor him in that way. And I, I think it's fucking fantastic. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of why we do the band at this point is because it keeps us connected to his memory, his music, our friendship. And it also keeps fans of Caven and fans of Caleb connected to that. Mm. I mean, when we do shows, Nate goes out and plays Caleb's bass, you know? And, um, you know, 19 years of being in a band with someone, um, it's just from here on out, we're always going to be affected by Caleb and I'm totally cool with that. And I feel like it's a gift, especially with Caven being able and willing to move forward. I mean, even writing stuff like lyrics for this new record and, you know, the arrangements and some of the riffs. I mean, we're still thinking like, what would Caleb do? You know, what would get him psyched enough to want to play something or to sing something or, um, yeah, he's still sort of guiding us. And I think that will always be the case. And yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting similarity. I mean, with Metallica, you know, those guys knew Cliff, you know, for what, like five years, I think, five or six or something. It's hard to say. Very short Um, time. Yeah. Shorter than we knew Caleb, for sure. Um, And that's not to make light of their situation. But that is an interesting distinction, for sure. Yeah. Um, So, again, we're just very fortunate that, especially Nate wants to be on board and be a part of this journey with us, because with Nate having been a a peer and a friend of ours for 20 plus years i mean he and caleb were in old man gloom together and they were just as close in a lot of ways um as we were with caleb um it, it helps us realize that you know we can do this and we feel like we've made the right choice and um yeah it's again it's just a real gift yeah, um, you know, Nate coming into the band r- reminds me of, you know, the way that, that fans have tried to draft Zach Wilde into Pantera, where it's like, yeah, if you if there's ever going to be a Pantera again, like, well, it's got to be that guy, you know, because there's the there's connections, the overlap, the friendship that the two of them had. And yeah, it gives me kind of goosebumps because it because it, 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 Nate's like the Zach in that position with Kaven, you know, it's like if Kaven was going to continue and have a bass player, well, it's got to be Nate from Converge. Like, you know, that's like, yeah, it just, it, it, it felt like the most natural um, thing in the world. And, and um, it's been awesome from what I can see. So, uh, well, boys, it has been my pleasure to see all of your faces and hear your voices and talk about Metallica. Any, closing thoughts on Metallica before we uh, conclude this journey on Speak and Destroy. I hope to get to meet him one day. 
Yeah, that's never happened, huh? Wow. No. I, I You know, I should also kind of talk just a little bit about the connection with Richie, who's done some artwork for Metallica, Richie Beckett. And, you know, my, I guess, uh, exposure to his work was through this T-shirt because I didn't really know about Richie. And then I'm seeing this shirt advertised, I don't know, somewhere. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, holy shit, this is the scariest Metallica shirt that I've seen in a long time. And it gave me those feelings of being young and looking at their record covers and the record stores and being freaked out. And it gave me the same feeling as like being in a movie store and being in the horror section, looking at all these movies that like I'm not old enough to watch yet. Um, So yeah, like, I know it's kind of hard to see here, but it's, I think it's a shirt for a moth into flame and I know it's supposed to be a moth, but it almost looks like, you know, uh, the show Fraggle Rock, the, the trash heap character. <laughs> it, it, that was redesigned by Sam Raimi. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. So I, that sort of started my connection to Richie's work and then meeting Richie and super cool dude. And, you know, he had that whole idea designing the shirt. He wanted to make something that scared him like early Metallica artwork did. Um, so we connected there and of course he's the artist responsible for the cover art for heavy pendulum and we're super fucking honored to work with him that's one degree of separation right there it seems inevitable (laughs) (laughs) there'll be another festival there'll be a something jr adam closing thoughts on the mighty metallica i you know i'm just I, I'm, I'm thankful that I discovered the Methuen and, you know, it brought me and my friends together. It was a really uniting thing back when we were kids, you know, it, it was, it was definitely a band that united all of us very early on. So, um, you know, I'm just thankful that they, they reached Methuen, you know, and got us go. It was definitely a gateway into all of us becoming friends. And then later on to where I'm sitting right now, being in a band with these guys in my forties, you know? Yeah, man. Yes. And, you know, that it's just a band that's great to have around and, and have, like you were saying earlier, just, a part of you know your life in various different time periods you know it's a band that helps people through a lot of the bullshit that they encounter especially i mean i i don't know if it's the same these days for me as a kid growing up i mean they certainly helped me through a lot of you know a lot of a lot of my teenage angsty years were taken up and and kind of um they kind of gave me the strength to move on you know uh, with some, you know, handful of other bands, but uh, they were definitely one of the top, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, they, they're they're definitely a band that's always going to be in my life in a very positive way. Yeah, that was something that, that parents in the 80s and 90s had a hard time understanding was like, yes, the stuff that seems so angry and, and, and violent and whatever, it isn't, it isn't causing your kids to go nuts it's keeping them from going nuts yeah you could relate to the anger and the and the emotions that they were projecting through the music and it it was like you know it's very much you know it's kind of like a cliche nowadays but it's like you could connect with that and you could you know identify with the feelings and the emotions that they were putting through it so yeah definitely helped me and i'm sure a lot of other people out too it gave us somewhere to put it because you have so much of that you just you don't know 
where it should go and then it's like oh you can put it here and it's you're, it's like you're sharing it back and forth uh well gentlemen awesome and yeah metallica continues to connect to different points in our life it gave me an excuse to get back in touch with all of you and say yeah. hello so very again. cool yeah, yeah. yeah. thank Likewise. you metallica <laughs> yes exactly thanks, <laughs> thanks guys you, metallica. thanks guys so much thank you all right thanks ryan see you